The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. So it's time for the Thursday interview, and I'm delighted to be joined by businesswoman and entrepreneur Nora Casey. Thank you very much. Yes. You know, I asked them in advance. Do I need to list out no. all your achievements? <laughs> but actually, you'd need like the whole program to that's, go through everything that you've achieved. That's because I'm 90. Yeah, well, uh, and most people call me a serial entrepreneur. And there's only one word that comes out to serial, and I don't particularly want to be called it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, it, it, it's a compliment, really. Uh, now, before we get into that, because we just talked about it very quickly, the, the thing that we have in common is we are both Dancing with the Stars alumni. Yes. <laughs> that was the craziest time of my life because I had just sold a big chunk of my business to an American company. And I thought it would be the saddest day in my life because my husband had died and I had imagined all kinds of different things in my future with the business. Then I took the difficult decision to sell what in essence I felt was my baby. And I remember sitting on the floor and his portraits on the wall in the hallway and I was having a chat with him saying I should have sold it sooner, blah, blah, blah. And the next day I went in to do rehearsals for Dancing with the Stars. And like my brothers, everybody were saying, what are you doing? Are you crazy? It was the best post-sale of a company therapy on the planet. Absolutely. I loved yeah. it. I mean, so for you, it was a positive <laughs> distraction. Oh, I've never done anything like it in my life. I've been it's working. All, it's all consuming, isn't it? Yeah. Since I was 17, I was working. Of course, Larry Bass, who runs the production company, yes. said, it won't knock a bother at you. You'll only be doing it one or two days a week. I mean, as you well know, you're 24-7. I was in my sleep doing dance steps, you know. In the kitchen, I would boil the kettle and do steps around the kitchen to try and remind myself. I mean, for doing. me, it was the most fun I ever had in my in my entertainment career. It was the most fun. It's not it's not my crowning achievement, but uh, <laughs> but but it was it really was the best crack. So uh, I was surprised to find out that you grew up not near the Phoenix Park, but literally in the Phoenix Park. Yeah, my my dad and my granddad were rangers, and um, so rangers are just like people that look after the constables. park. Constables, actually, my grandfather would have been called a constable, and his uniform looked like a guard's uniform, and it sort of dates back to the Viceroy Regal and the British uh, colonization. And my dad, my granddad, um, fought in 1916, but he was only just turned 17. And he was minding the graves in Arbor Hill, the heroes' graves, and he had my um, he had married my grandmother. And she was also trying to blow up the rail track going to Belfast and was passing them up uh, stones and bombs. And that's how they met at Beggar's wow. Bush. So, um, how did you not end up in politics with this this revolutionary yeah, pedigree? Even, I feel like all Irish politicians have this story. Even my great grandmother's part Indian, you know, so I have that great DNA of a family who left Calcutta and did six months coming around to Ireland. And she was the only survivor of that family. So, yeah, I but did. all that DNA hates the English. <laughs> no, I married an Englishman. <laughs> I, I think I live perfectly between the two countries, but always cognizant of our shared history, I can assure you. But anyway, after he did the graves and he had the first two children, one of which was my dad, uh, De Valera got in and through all kinds of different entreaties and everything, he ended up in the lodge in the North Circular Road. And uh, we've been there ever since. It's, it's You know, when you're growing up in... That kind of was eight of us in three bedrooms. They opened the front door. We had a dog called Ricky that minded us. And we just were like, you know, feral children. I, there isn't a bit of the Phoenix Park. I don't know. My mum's still there, obviously, and my sister. And I'm up there all the time. And, you know, I'm always showing people little cubby holes. And this was our house. And this is the jungle that we used to play in. But, you know, I didn't appreciate it fully until I left. And then I look back now and think, wow, what a magical place, like. You know? Yeah, because like when I when I passed the house that I grew up in Flushing, Queens, like in New York, I get some nostalgia. But I would like to think that 
if I had the ability to have the Phoenix Park to be like my place for nostalgia, it's pretty cool. It's very cool. And my, my husband's buried there, actually. His ashes are buried there. He asked me to marry him there. So there's so many, you know, when, when I go to the Phoenix Park, I feel like I'm walking through the whole of my life sometimes. You know, it's an amazing place. And also, you know, people see what happened to me later in life and wonder, you know, what kind of privileged environment I came from. And I actually went to a Dutch school in Stanhope Street, you know, called Stanner. We used to call yeah. it St. Joseph's. A great Dublin school. Seven. Stony yeah, Batter before Stony Batter. Stony Batter before it was hip and cool. <laughs> yeah, my father would be the, one of the alphas up in one of those pubs now that are all full of hipsters. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I still think that it's possible for kids, you know, m- my parents didn't have a lot, but they really believed in education. Uh, they drummed yeah. it into us. Uh, they weren't helicopter parents. We, I don't know where we got it from, but, you know, the cases of PhDs and all went out and did, you know, lots of great things in their lives and different types of things, you know, but I just, I'm always grateful for the fact that what they taught us from the beginning was education as a privilege. And I, I've, all my life, I've gone back to education. I think I've the perpetual student, always back at university, always studying something. You you went to Scotland to study nursing, but then switched to journalism. What was the what what was the decision that made you think actually there's something else uh, for me? So the the, sh- the short version is I was uh, just coming up for seventeen. I maybe my mom kicked me into school a little bit earlier because I was the middle child. But anyway, I left school at sixteen. Did yeah. my leaving start at sixteen? So I was hanging around Dublin Zoo actually raising two baby gorillas in quarantine and wondering what I might do with my life. And um, my mother was a nurse. I have aunts and uncles who are nurses. And it's a steady gig, right? It's well, one of those I grew things. up with my dad saying, civil service, the banker, the nursing, you know. So uh, thank goodness they didn't say, or the convent, you know. The great thing about Scotland is I felt it was like Ireland, just to hop and a skip across the water, yeah. and that I wasn't really committed to it for very long. You know, I kind of went there thinking, this is fantastic. I'd never flown before in my life before I took that airplane. And um, I always felt I'd be back in six months, and I just absolutely loved it. I mean, I did three years as a registered general nurse. Um, anyone in later life who says, you know, you set out to make millions, I say, for goodness sake, I was a nurse. We got paid in job satisfaction, you know, but I always credit it with giving me the best foundation. If, if it comes to communication skills, I could walk into a room at 17 and know when somebody was in pain or when somebody yeah. needed a cup of tea or their hand held or just to be left alone. You know, in terms of empathy, something that... We don't often teach our children. Yes. You know, I was getting a, a big dose of empathy as to what it feels like. So how do you go from this, like it's like a vocation, right? Like nursing is almost like, like a calling. What makes you say, quite young, actually, no, this is not what I want to do? I went to Edinburgh and studied Burns for a year and it was horrific. That's the only wow. way to put it. You know, when you see young children who are the only survivors of a house fire. And at the end of that, I said, I can't do this in my life. I just can't do it. You know, I, I, I love nursing. I stay around nurses a lot. I speak. And every time people say it's hard in business, it's just bloody hard in business. God almighty. Like I'll never face decisions like I faced in nursing, you know. Uh, it, I'd hate to say it was a foundation for life because that would be a total waste of all of the money that it costs to educate a nurse. But it stood to me time and time again in all parts of my life. But it wasn't for me. So not only did you get into journalism, but you ended up sort of, running journalism you ended up being quite successful as a like a journalistic entrepreneur a media a media business yeah, I, so the other thing that is in my family is media and journalism and you know my brother ran a film company we're all kind of semi-involved in those my sister's journalists but so I went into the postgraduate in Harlow there's only four places you could train as a journalist in the UK I think it was Cardiff Glasgow Sheffield and Harlow and I went to Harlow and um 
And I did a postgrad at 23, 24, and I was the oldest. Like, I just felt like the, the worst mature student, you know. But because I then had nursing and journalism, I went and worked on peer-reviewed journals. Um, so I, I launched Evidence-Based Practice with British Medical Journal, and I was working in a, a real swatty sort of job. Yes, you're a real nerd. <laughs> like, a real nerd. And actually, I think in my life, you know, I went off, did my MPhil, was going on to my PhD. I, th- I think there was a, definitely a V in my life where I thought uh, I could easily go into academia, you know. I loved working on peer-reviewed journals. It's funny, the, the, the safe options were, were really sucking you in early on. Yeah, really. What, 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 so when did you realise that you were an entrepreneur? When did you realise that just being the journalist wasn't enough? When did you realise that you were going to be the because boss? When I was a news reporter, I thought this is the best job. Look at those poor suckers in the news desk having to edit in my copy. Then I became news editor. I said, this is the best job. I can change all the copy of all those people who write. <laughs> then I became kind of editorial director and I thought, wow, this is the best job. I can decide what's going to go into the news paper. And then I became editor and said, I'm never looking back. This is it. And then finally, they made me CEO. Now, firstly, I was the worst CEO. Somebody once uh, asked me to, in the last six months, a podcast, who's your worst boss? It was me. (laughs) The staff nearly had a riot because I wouldn't make a decision. They used to say Nora's indecision is final. You know, they'd slag me about it and um, I wouldn't make a decision to save my life. And um, I took myself off to Ashridge Management College and I learned about how to be a CEO. I'm an oh. lifeline. I did two years strategic management and then advanced strategic. Anyway, I learned all of the books, all of the strategies, all of the formulas, all of the book learning. And then I realised that that was probably the best job because not only was I overseeing everything, I had this great excitement about launching new things or acquiring new things. And it was never, it was never the money. It still isn't. I never take money out of the business. I, I you know, I work in philanthropy a lot. I, I'm totally disinterested. Myself and Dara live in a two-bed house. Like, I'm totally disinterested in money or any of the trappings or what it might give me. But the It's idea, great to be disinterested in it when you have it, though. <laughs> well, I didn't have it. to be disinterested. Sorry, I didn't have it for a lot of my life because yeah. uh, I guess all of the way through my 20s, um, as most people know who are listening to this, I was with a man who was violent and abusive towards me and I had absolutely no money when I left him. And by the way, zero confidence, hence how at 30 they were calling me the person who never made a decision because the woman you see in front of you is not the woman who left that marriage. You know, um, I, I married him in my early 20s. I had no confidence whatsoever. So I would say it's quite extraordinary that somebody like me ends up doing something like I've done. Yes, But I... I know that the day that changed my life is the day I left that marriage. That's that's the hardest thing to say because I'd love to say it was all my education and, you know, my true grit and everything. It, it was out of something really dark that gave me that strength to say that's never going to happen to me again. I'm not going to allow anybody to own me financially. I'm going to make my own money. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to own my own life. And at the time I was homeless. I had a small bag. I had a tatty rundown car. I had nothing to my name. I was literally homeless for months, sleeping on people's sofas. I stayed at the Ibis at Heathrow, never told my employer. And I was CEO are at you, the time. Oh, you were CEO at the time that that happened? Yeah. And what, at that time, what services were you able to... None. None. There was no such thing. You know, you, I was away. People always say, you weren't a typical domestic uh, abuse survivor. I was totally typical. Firstly, I was a nurse. So... I just discovered afterwards meeting other women that often they target empathetic people um, and nurses appear quite strongly on the list. And then I was away from all my friends. I just arrived in London and um, and I was quite vulnerable and he was much older. He was 40. And um, so he was like, you know, I suppose 
grooming might be too strong a word to start with, but definitely he was taking me places I'd never been. I, you know, I didn't have any clothes. I mean, I was a nurse. The first, second or third day she was giving me gold bracelets. These are things I like to think now that weren't influencing my decision, but nobody in my life had ever told me they loved me yeah. or put me on a pedestal. Love, I, love bombing, the, the yeah. youngsters call it now. But I, I still work with young people who still don't know the true meaning of love and early relationships. It's very hard when you're young. I'd never had a relationship until I met Peter and I thought this is love. You know, somebody who does this one minute says you look amazing, the next minute are you really going to add what, that? What was, the early, what was the early warning sign? Apart from some gritted teeth and, you know, rough hands, if somebody talked to me when we were out and he didn't want me to talk to them, um, I wasn't even married to my... I'm embarrassed to tell this because um, I think if I knew back then that when somebody slaps you, they're never going to stop, I might have made a different decision, which is why I always work with young people. But he had, for the two years I'd known him, he kept saying, I need to take you to all the amazing places in the world. I'd never been anywhere. You know, really, I'd never been anywhere. And um, he booked this round-the-world trip, like a trip of a lifetime. He owned the passports. He booked the trip. The night before, we went out to dinner, and we were coming back up the driveway to his house, and I must have said something, I still don't know what. And he slammed his hands on the steering wheel. And he kind of, you know, when somebody, he only ever drove Porsche. So that's just a little inside. The kind that's, of a, that's a red flag. So he screeched to a halt. And uh, I thought, I don't know what I've said. Already I'm thinking I must have said something. And he got out his side of the door and he came around to my side. And I thought he was just helping me out, you know, so... Porsches are quite low. And uh, he opened the door and I started to get out and he just slammed my head on the top of the car really hard. And he very casually got up and opened the door and walked in and went up to bed. And I remember, you know, going inside thinking, oh my God, that just happened. Did he really do that to me? I can assure you cauliflower ear is a thing. The whole side of my face was swollen and bruising was beginning to appear. And I sat on the couch thinking what am I going to do about this? And am I right going away with him? And what did I say to make him do that to me? And, you know, before 5am hit, I was thinking, what makeup can I put on to, you know, mask all that bruising? We went to Heathrow. He never, we lived in London, obviously. We never, he never spoke to me until about an hour into the flight. And he leaned over and he touched the side of my face, which was seriously swollen and bruised. And he was crying. And he kept saying, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. You know, I, I was stressed and work and everything was on top of me. I'll never do that again. And I wanted to believe him. You know, I so much of me wanted to think, of course, he won't do it again. I mean, that was just a and great how, how aberration. Long? Oh, look, you know, um, we got married and um, I'd say pretty soon afterwards, the violence happened. Mm. Um, I tried to blot out a lot of them. The worst was probably the one that stays in my mind because it's when I decided to leave him and he we'd been at a friend's house and he was drinking and he was driving and I wouldn't get into the car with him and I said I'll, I'll walk home and he was enraged and he went off and uh, when I came home um, I, I didn't have keys so I knocked on the door and he was obviously asleep I was ringing the doorbell I was ringing the phone he wasn't answering probably went on for about 20 minutes and maybe I was knocking harder and harder during that time and he came to the door and he just grabbed me by the hair and he uh, hauled me into the hallway. There was a, quite a large hallway. And he started punching and kicking me. And uh, he rained, I can't tell you how many, like bones. And then he went for a knife in the kitchen. And at that point, I scrambled into the sitting room and barricaded the door with the couch. And 
um, I knew I'd broken ribs and bones in my face. Like to this day, this side of my mouth goes down. So the irony is even when I'm happiest and people say smile, you know, for the camera, I'm reminded of the fact that I've got bones and muscle damage on this side that will never fix, you know. And I woke up at about 3 a.m. and he was standing over me. I don't know how he got in um, to the room and he still had the knife. And I just thought, you're dead. You're just dead. And instead of that, he was on his knees again, as always, saying he was really sorry. He'd never do it again. Please forgive me. I just need one more chance. And, and every time I tried to leave him, he threatened to take his life or he would do something like throw all my stuff out the door. And it was just very aggressive and violent. And it probably after that really bad incident, it probably took me another two years. Of really? Wow. So because we're running out of time, not that I wouldn't talk about this for another hour, what do you think is the most important thing to put out there for anyone who's starting to see the warning signs? Phone woman's aid, first of all, because I didn't have that ability. A lot of people feel, oh, well, he's not violent, so it's not that, you know, it's not that bad for me. It's always bad. I, if I think of the things that have been most damaging in my life, the psychological damage is probably the worst coercive control. And secondly, tell somebody, my life changed because I told my mom who's an amazing person. But if you don't have a Mags Casey <laughs> to help you, um, she only she saw him slapping me about a week before I left him. And she said, your brothers will spend life in prison for murdering him if you don't leave him. And it just gave me the strength to pack a small bag and leave him. So I'd say tell somebody that you trust. Um, and and plus your, your evidence that... Even though it feels like your life, I guess you feel like you can't leave. Your evidence that once you free yourself, oh, the sky's the limit. Look, honestly, what happened to me afterwards, I met my lovely Richard, the love of my life. I know he's passed away, but my God, you know, most people don't go through their lives knowing somebody that they love, you know, and he was definitely the absolute love of my life. And I'm always grateful that I had that time with him. I have a beautiful son, an amazing son, Dara who's 24, doing his master's. I hope he's doing his master's today um, in archaeology. I went on to own businesses, to launch businesses. More importantly, I, I went on to give back, you know. That's the best part of my life now is that I got to do the Magdalene Survivors and the documentaries with them and the domestic violence documentary. Like, I'm at a stage in my life when I look back and think, I did something really bad. And, and just take it that if a teacher says, you're never going to amount to much. You carry that which you've thought of your life. I carried nine years of a bad marriage. So yeah. it was a big motivation for me to get myself organised and to feel that I was going to stand on my own two feet. And I had, you know, so far, <laughs> a hugely successful life, you know, despite being a survivor of domestic violence. Well, that's, that's a great, it's a great message. We have to go, sadly. I don't like uh, ending this conversation, but it was great uh, to chat to you. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, Nora Casey, with such a, a powerful message. That is the end of the show. Uh, sadly, we have to go. I've really enjoyed my day. Thanks for having me. Thanks to the producers. Uh, Off the Ball is next.